Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 6 on your device or in your Bible. And if you're at home, I want to give you a welcome as well. And thank you for jumping in with us. If you're homesick, I know we've got a bunch of people sick right now. Uh, Just as I talk and pray for our our people, and as we've been talking as pastors, there's a whole bunch of sick people. So just know we're praying for you. And if you're home, glad you're jumping in online. Uh, Well, Isaiah 6 is in the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, maybe just open your Bible up to the to the middle and turn a couple books to the right and you'll probably find it if you need to look in the table of contents there's no shame in doing that feel free to jump in and look it up and we are going to skip around a bit today but uh, most of our time is going to be spent in a famous passage there in Isaiah the in Isaiah 6 so in this series we're talking about some of our church vision and mission and we're, we're calling the series truth beauty and strength things that we want to be uh, a part of the life of our church. And really, some of this is motivated by our aim of moving downtown and just the clarity and the excitement that we have about what's going on there. But honestly, these are things that should be there whether we are moving to a building or not. Uh, these are things that should be a part of the church. Our mission does not change. Um, and so as we head into a new year, we want to refocus on some of these things. But it's also nice to have some extra motivation. Uh, I was telling our church, that uh, our, our team, that as you think about building, moving into a building, it's nice that we've got a little bit of a runway. You know, when, you, uh, when, when your family gets pregnant and they have a baby that they're going to bring into the family, God gives you like a nine to ten month prep period, you know, where you have to kind of get ready to welcome this new family member into, uh, into your family with the birth of a child. And so, you know, you have all these things you have to do. You got to get your go bag. You got to get the nursery ready. You got to get a crib. You got to get all the stuff and you got to just get everything ready. Well, as we think about moving into our new home downtown, we want to be ready to welcome new people into our family as well. And so some of this gives us a little extra added motivation just to think through, and who are we and where are our hearts as we prepare ourselves for moving into this new space. So today we're going to take the first of those three items, truth, beauty, and strength. We're going to talk about truth. And um, we need to know, we need to know truth. But ultimately, if we're going to flourish in a downtown is a downtown church for decades to come, we've got to be people that are committed to truth. We've got to be people that are rooted in truth. And we've got to surrender the truth of God and his word. If we, if we don't, we're going to piddle around with niceties. We're going to do all kinds of nice things, but we're going to eventually dwindle away into irrelevance because we have nothing of magnitude to point people to. Without truth that is bigger than you and me, our mission is going to fail. So let's talk about truth. This is perhaps the most countercultural thing that, that we have to talk about in the, life of our, in the life of a church today. And as we think about the world in which we live, if you go back a thousand years or 500 years, there was sort of a, an assumption within the world in the broader spectrum 
that there are certain laws that govern the universe. There's certain divine uh, design to the way that things work. There was an assumption that natural laws influenced the way we did things, so gravity made things fall, and we understood basics of life in, in a similar way. But there's also an assumption that there was a moral law, and, and not everyone agreed on what the source of that was or what that ought to be, but they all agreed that there was one out there somewhere that we sort of needed to adhere to. That's not true anymore. Now we don't talk about the truth. We talk about my truth and your truth. We, we talk about this personally determined, whatever my desires and my wants are, ought to be expressed in this act of self-expression but that which, uh, by which I find my identity. And everyone around me is to then affirm my identity and the truth that I have discovered from my life. And so that's the way we tend to think about things today in the way in which we tend to operate. So personal freedom is the greatest value now, and the only evil is trying to dictate to someone else what their truth ought to be. And yet we look at Scripture, and it comes from a different perspective. And so in some ways this is a countercultural thing. In many ways uh, this pushes against uh, our culture, pushes against the idea of any external or objective truth like we find in the Christianity or in the Bible. But much of the discussion that happens out there when you talk about Christianity, when you talk about the Bible, really is filled with a lot of straw man and it's filled with a lot of caricatures. It really is not accurately depicting what the Bible says about truth and what the Bible says about the person of God. And so as we do, I think it's especially important for us to talk about truth today. Um, now, when we started this church, I uh, showed you pictures a little bit ago of some of the vision nights that we used to host in my living room. We began every one of those looking at two verses from Jeremiah 2. And those two verses read like this. Be appalled at this. This is God talking. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, you know what God says, be appalled, and he, he's talking to the, the heavenly host, and he looks around and says, to everyone that's above everything going on on earth, I want you to look down on earth, and I want you to reel in, in, in uh, kind of shock at what's going on down there. What were the two awful things that were happening? He said, they've forsaken me. Why was that such a big deal? He noticed that... Um, that he calls himself the fountain of living waters. He says, I created all of these people. I made them. I designed them. I know everything that makes the intricacy of their heart tick. I know everything they need to live. I know how they long for communion, communion with a triune God who, who was there, who was present, who spoke their universe into existence, who created a perfect world where they could breathe the air and things to grow up out of the ground that they could eat and they could enjoy, and things that they could look on and observe and see the beauty of a sunset and a sunrise and trees that blossom and animals that roam the earth. And I know everything that they need, and I've given them. He said, I'm a fountain of living water, meaning I will meet all their needs, and I'm committed to them to the nth degree. And yet they've forsaken me. they turned their back on me. Is that not shocking, he says? Be appalled at this. Not only that, look at the second thing that they did. He says, they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Cistern is a, a shallow deal that's like a well. We would think of it as probably as like a well. And what he's saying is, you, you abandoned me, this 
perfect living water. Living water was, it was fresh. It never got stale. It never got old. It never was corrupted. It was flowing. And so there was always a sense of cleanness and freshness and purity and goodness that came from living water. He says, look, I provided you perfectly good living water and you dug out your own, your own well and your well happened to be a broken well. Now, what's the problem with a broken well? Well, one uh, is that it's leaky, and so you're exhausted all the time because it's continually flowing out. And so everything that you're trying to do, instead of being restful and, and life-giving, is exhausting because you're having to fill and to fill and to fill, and everything's leaking out as fast as you're pouring in. You ever feel like that with life? You ever look at your bank account and think that's what it feels like? Like, man, I put it in, and it just keeps going out. I don't know what's going on. And that's part of what he's saying is you're running after stuff that you think is going to meet your need, and it's exhausting you because you just have to keep dumping in. You ever feel like your work schedule like, is like that? I saw someone posted a picture the other day, and, I, and they kind of made fun of OCD people. And I'm, I don't think I'm that guy, but it panicked me a little bit because it had something like 116,000 unread emails. And I was just like, oh, like, how do you look at that every night? And I just kind of created a little panic. If you ever feel like that with your email, that you keep deleting and they just keep filling up? And your task list to work, you're like, man, I knocked it out this week. And you get there Monday and it's the, just as long as it was the week before. We keep running and chasing and doing and it's exhausting. The other problem with a broken well is not just that it's exhausting, but the bad stuff seeps in. And so it's not actually life-giving. It's not actually clean. It's not actually reliable. It's something you can build your life, you can nourish your life upon. And so God's appalled. And he says, look at, look at what the people I created did. They forsook, forsaken me. And I was going to meet all their needs. And they tried to do it better on their own. And they're exhausted. And they're actually hurting themselves in the process. Does that sound like a world you know? See, this is as old as Adam and Eve, right? Uh, this goes all the way back to the garden where God provided them and said, I'll take care of all your needs, just, just, just trust me. And they were like, I think we can do it better. And they tried it their own way, and it caused pain and brokenness and sadness. It's similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You get to the end of it, and he says, I've told you how to live. And he just says there's two different ways you can live. You can build your life upon the rock, or you can build it upon the sand. But how you choose to build is going to determine whether it stands or whether it falls. This is as old as human history. This text in Jeremiah is written thousands of years ago, hundreds of years before Jesus, long before there was ever an institutional church or Christianity or anything else. But what I want you to understand as we talk about truth today is this is the heart of truth, is that God says, I want good for you. I want to meet your needs, and I will do so, but you have to trust me. And we keep trying to find a better way and thinking we're going to do we're going to find, a, find an easier path or a better path, a more fulfilling path, but it doesn't ever work. So ultimately, we have to decide whether we'll let God be God or whether we want to go it alone. And this is really the key decision in human life. And so as we talk about this as a church, we trust that this is God's word. Um, second, uh, second Timothy 3.16 says, uh, tells us that Christians ought to be committed to truth, not because we want to restrict and hinder you, but because... We believe it's the path to human flourishing. We believe it was what will bring good. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So the first thing we have to understand is that truth is personal. All Scripture 
Uh, when you look at Scripture and we, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that's the Old and New Testament. When it says Scripture, it's referring to those. And so when you think about it, Scripture being personal, it's breathed out. Do you know how it is that I'm making sound right now? My daughter asked me the other day, she goes, how do we talk? Kids are the best questions, right? Like, how does that work? And really, it's that you inhale and you get... You get um, air within your lungs and then you breathe that out and you compress that as you do it comes out through your uh through past your vocal cords and your vocal cords vibrate and as they do they project and then out of your mouth it projects out and moves out as in, as waves until it enters your ears and you hear that and so it's when it says all scripture is breathed out it's meaning god revealed it god spoke it god has communicated that which is true and you notice that God's speech was given to us. He says it's profitable, meaning it was good. God gave us directions for our good so that we would thrive. Um, you notice uh, the, the four areas that it says Scripture does for us. The Bible teaches us. It means it shows us how to live. It shows us how to flourish. It, it trains us in understanding what is good and beautiful and true. It, it teaches us and cultivates in us a love of those Things uh, which are which we are to seek in life, and we, we we look at scripture for for understanding as to what it means to live as a single, what it what it means to live as a married person, and we understand and we look at scriptures for how we had to understand the origins of humanity, what it means to be male and female. We look to the scriptures, we understand the meaning of life and the purpose of life, and we look at it and we the scriptures guide us and tell us that we're to value all human life. That whether someone has a GED or PhD, they're of great worth to the Lord. That's not about uh, their IQ points that dictates uh, their, their value to, um, to society. That ultimately all life matters to God. And it's not just those who um, have great earning power or great beauty or great intelligence or great ingenuity. But that all people are of value because they're created in the image of God. And so we look to the scriptures and we trust that they are true, and they teach us what it is we're to think and what we're to believe. Do you notice the second thing there? It says that the Bible not only teaches us, it reproves us. To reprove someone is to stop them in their tracks. So they're running headlong one way, and you go, hold on there, partner. And so you reprove them, you rebuke them, you stop them, and say, the path you're going is not going to lead you where you want to go. You're actually leading, the road you're on leads you to the way of destruction. And so to reprove someone, the scripture kind of comes up as a stop sign and says, stop, not going where you want to go. Not only that, it doesn't leave you there, right? Because you could just do that. You could just stop and say, hey, loser, don't go that way. That's not going to be good. But scripture doesn't do that. It actually corrects us. Correcting us is when someone's going this way, you stop, you turn them around, you send them back a different direction, you aim them in the right direction. So scripture teaches us. When we get off path, it reproves us, it redirects or corrects us, and then it says it trains us in righteousness. It actually builds us up so that we can run down the paths that are going to lead us to life. That's what the intent of Scripture is. Do you see how that works? And that's why we say that Scripture is a good thing. And all this, it says, has a grand purpose, so that the man of God or woman may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, this is why we want to build our, the life of our church around the Word of God. It's why we teach and preach the word. It's why we have equip nights like we'll have later tonight where we want to teach you on different topics. It's why we have equipped classes. As we, as we move forward in the life of our church, 
We want to see more and more of these things develop, and we want to be able to, to add staff to be able to, to develop those things. We want to be able to train you so that you all can teach one another and, and help grow and make disciples. And so these are things that we want to be about in the life of our church. Now, of course, what you have to realize as we begin to think about all this is you have to decide whether you believe this is true or not. Because I, I can tell you what the scriptures can do for you. I can tell you what their intent is. I can tell you how they're designed to be used and what they're meant to do. But if you don't trust them, if you don't believe them, if you don't believe that God's word is here for your good and for your flourishing, you're never going to submit or surrender to those things. You're never going to come underneath them. And here's what I see in our, in our culture is that most of us are trying to make sense out of our faith. We're trying to decide if God's worth trusting. We're trying to decide if there's too many problems and, and issues with this book for me to trust it. We're trying to decide if the failures and hypocrisy that we see in the church discounts everything that's taught here. We, we, we're wrestling with the fact that so many people in our world have tripped and fallen and stumbled and stubbed their toe that it's hard for us to find our way to Jesus. And so when we look at the world and we look at the church, some of us are asking the question, is the church that represents Jesus, why is it I can't seem to find Jesus in it? And I think that's the question a lot of people are asking. We look around the contemporary church and we think, and surely there's something better than this. Surely the cultural Christianity and all the stuff that I see going on isn't what Jesus was trying to create when he sent the disciples out to start churches. And we begin to wrestle with that. And I think people are weary. People are weary of, uh, of cultural Christianity that has little bearing on life. People are weary of power plays and politics. I think people are weary of churches that bully people. I think people are weary of churches that value budgets, buildings, and butts more than they want to serve like Jesus. And friends, I'm pro-building. I want us to have a building. But when we open the doors to a building, I want us to have something there worth inviting people to experience. I want people to be able to encounter something bigger than me or you. And as wonderful as you are, I want them to see Jesus in you so that they desire him and they encounter him. And that's what ultimately changes lives. Friends, the stats, I can read you know, stat after stat. The stats aren't good in America. You know, I was a church history major, and so when I, was, when I got my, my master's in theology, I did lots of church history, and I love it. And I can tell you from looking at church history that church is going to be fine. Jesus sustained the church through all kinds of craziness. Like, we think, the, we think COVID's rough. You've got to try the plague. I mean, the church has been through all kinds of stuff, and the church is going to be here in 100 years if Jesus doesn't come back to take us home. I'm not worried about the church. I'm not worried about Jesus and the mission he's going to do. I'm not worried about those things. But I am worried about our moment and what we get to do in this period of time in human history, in this town, in this church. Because what's at stake is not whether the church is going to thrive. The church is going to thrive. What's at stake is what role we get to play and whether we honor God and whether we bear witness to the beauty of Jesus and the truth of his word in our day. That is what's at stake for us. Friends, um, stats have come out about nuns and all these different things, those who have no religious affiliation and how the number of people in our society are, that have no religious affiliation is just increasing at a rapid pace. 
Um, 15 years ago, that was 5 to 1. Christians versus people that had no religious affiliation, that's now 2 to 1. And so that shrunk. And so the, the number of people that, that no longer have any religious affiliation has gone down tremendously. You look at um, people that have some kind of a church involvement, it's gone from 68% to 47% in a matter of 15 years. Uh, it's not just the number that's gone down, it's the pace that it's plummeting. You look at the younger generation, it's even, uh, it's even more discouraging in some ways. The most reliable studies, uh, one guy says, now show as little as 8% of white millennials identify as evangelicals compared to 26% of seniors, and it's even worse when you get to the younger generations. So in America, the church is struggling. And I think it's because we're weary for all the reasons I mentioned just a little bit ago. We're weary of a church that seems void of the presence of God. And so as I think about where we want to go, um, and I just desire for a presence of God. You know, the, the, the shift is happening in the church to where the future of the church right now is in the southern hemisphere. It's in, it's in China, it's in Africa, it's in South America. People are saying that uh, there may be more Christians in China than in the U.S. by the year 2030. So less than a decade. By 2050, I think China at current rates would, would actually be majority Christian country. And we're trending in radically different directions. The church is going to be fine. God in his sovereignty is going to work all things out. What's at stake is what we get to do in the life that we've been given, in the days that we've been given with the breaths that we have. What role do we get to play and what are we going to do in the midst of all this. So I want us to look at one last passage today that I think addresses this point and really raises the question of why would you trust God with your life and why would you trust God's word to build your life around? And I, think you, I don't think you'll ever do that if you don't have an encounter with God himself. I don't think you'll ever do that if you just feel like it's a religious system that's been handed down from your parents to you. I don't think you'll ever do that if you feel like it's this pressure thing that someone's trying to get you to conform to a certain moral standard. I don't think you'll ever do it if you think it's just a cultural thing that is common in our place and in our time. I think the only way you're ever going to surrender to what God says and that what he says is for your good and for your flourishing is if you have an encounter with God. And if you see him for who he is. And so um, let's go to Isaiah 6. I was telling my boys that um, our home from college on Christmas break, I was talking with them about uh, a book that I read called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul when I was in college that really, really shaped the way I think about some of these things and particularly this passage. So I'm going to draw on some of that today. But it introduced me to some of what we're talking about. Let me read in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And behold, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord to Isaiah. An experience and a vision that Isaiah had. And you notice what it says in that passage. It starts off, it says, In the year that Uzziah died. For them, this was a time of great transition. Uzziah had been king for 52 years. He became king when he was 16 years old. And so they had seen him as king. Most of these people that they talked to had never, they don't remember another king before Uzziah. And so everything in their country, and Uzziah was a good king. He wasn't, he wasn't as strong as, as like a David, but he was a good king until later in his life where he made some bad decisions. But overall, this was a good period in, in their history as a nation. And so as they're walking through this, imagine, imagine 52 years. How many presidential terms is that? If my math is right, it's like 13 presidential terms. That takes us back. Think of in our country, one ruler from Vietnam and Watergate to today. And how long that would be and how you'd be used to one way of doing things and one voice to hear and one person to look to. And now that person's gone and their country's in mourning. And there's a fear about what the future holds. What's ahead? What's coming in the days, um, in the days to come? Um, can you relate? Do you ever feel like the future is uncertain? Do you ever get worried about the days ahead? Uh, days ahead? See, some of you are thinking, man, I'm not worried about the days ahead. I'm just worried about now. Like I'm looking around at the world right here today, and I'm like, I'm not sure we're, on the, we're doing very well. And so we get a little bit nervous about the things that are going on around us. And this is different for them because they were God's people and they were a nation of Israel. But they were worried and into that moment, that time where they had fears and anxieties and stresses. I think that's why Isaiah begins this and says, in the year that King Uzziah died. He's saying in the year that we were all worried, in the year that so much of life seemed up in the air, guess what? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Friends, is that good news? In the year that King Uzziah This earthly king died away and we had so much fear. The Lord was still on his throne. Not only that, he was seated. He wasn't fretting. He wasn't worried. He wasn't panicked. He wasn't scrambling. He wasn't running around trying to hold the thing together. The Lord was seated on his throne in the heavens. In In Isaiah's vision, people were ringing and worried, but the king of kings was sitting down with no panic at all. See, even when earthly worries trouble us, there's a heavenly king who's on the throne, who's sovereign over all. And you notice in Isaiah's vision, he's sitting in the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees God in the temple. And you notice what it says about him, that the Lord was seated upon a throne. This throne's high and lifted up. And then from the throne, the train of his robe, and this this vision of of who God was, it said this train of his robe just filled the whole temple. So as he's watching this thing, it's uplifted above the altar, and this this robe comes down, and around that throne that's lifted up that God is seated upon, the king of kings, uh, there are two seraphim. And so these angels, these seraphim are flying, and and two of them, they're covering their face so they can't see the Lord, and two of them are covering their feet, kind of like Moses when he went in into the burning bush, and he said, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. They're covering their feet because that's something that's connected to an earthly thing. Even though they're angels out of reverence, they're doing it. And with the other two wings, they're flying. And as they fly, you notice what it is uh, that they're screaming. It says that, that smoke fills the, the room. 
and there in the midst of this, these angels are shouting back and forth to one another. So this one angel's flying over here, and he shouts to the one on the other side, and the other angel's on this side, and he shouts back to the other one over the Lord. And what is it that they're screaming? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Imagine the power of that moment. It says that their voices rang to the point that the temple vibrated and shook, that the fixtures rattled with the loudness of the booming voice that was given in that moment. Holy, holy, holy. Three times that one word's repeated in Hebrew poetry. It repeats something in order to emphasize it. So for us, we would throw extra images on it, or we put extra exclamation points. For Hebrew poetry, they would repeat something. This is the only word in all the scriptures that's repeated three times. It's the only time a characteristic of God is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. It means that he's set apart, that he's distinct, that he's wholly other than we are, that there's something different. He, he lives in a different realm and a different experience than anything we can imagine. So he's not just holy, but he's holy, holy, holy different than you and me. And you're meant to feel that and feel the vibration of the temple when that happens. And it says that as that's going, it speaks. And Isaiah was in the presence of God. And for Isaiah, it's absolutely overwhelming. Do you notice what he says? Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of people of an unclean lips. For I've seen, my eyes have seen the king. He's coming apart. I love the older translation when it says, I am lost. You translate it, I am undone. I'm, I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm cracking up. I'm breaking apart. Just being in the presence of God, everything in me is just about to fly off in pieces. I can't hold it together anymore. And you're meant to feel that. And he says that weird thing, woe is me. And we don't often think about woe. Um, but it's interesting that um, woe just means I'm. I'm lost, I'm damned, I'm cursed. Meaning, because I'm sinful and I'm seeing God for who he is, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to come unglued. And this is saying something, because Isaiah was one of the most famous people in the world at that time. He was an incredibly well-respected man. He was likely a wealthy man. He was actually nobility. So he's well-educated, he's highly accomplished, he's used to running with kings. And so he's used to moving in and out of kings' uh, kings' houses. And there would not be much that could impress or intimidate Isaiah, yet in one moment, in the presence of God, his entire world unravels. Woe is me, I'm undone. Notice what he says, why I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, we don't really know why he says uses that image of unclean lips, uh, but it likely has something to do with what Jesus said, which is out of the mouth come the issues of the heart, that, that the mouth and what is revealed there reveal what was really going on inside. And there's probably something there. And as a guy who was a prophet, when he spoke for God, he recognized that in the midst of his speaking for a holy God, his unholiness put him in an uncomfortable place. But his eyes have seen God, and he understands what sin really is. So God is holy, and sin is that which is not holy. All that God is, Isaiah says, I'm not. And there's something radically different about God, and there's no denying it. It's what it means to be holy. 
Like he, he sits there in front of God and he says, you're wholly different than me. There's something about you that is different. Friends, we need to know that God is holy. We need to understand what it is to, st- to be in his presence. And that we are sinners and left to ourselves. There's no way for us to enter the presence of holiness without being completely undone. When we understand that, it changes everything as it did for Isaiah. R.C. Sproul said, the problem is not with our eyes, but with our hearts. And isn't that good? It wasn't what he saw that was a problem. It was what he knew was true of him in comparison to what he saw that rocked his world. Uh, in a split second, um, one guy drew this out. I think it's helpful. Think about this. Isaiah saw all of his sin in a moment. Think about what that, would, what that experience would be like to see all of your sin in an instant. Every lustful thought, every hurt you've caused, every vengeful desire, every lie you ever told, every prideful and judgmental attitude, all at once he felt the weight of it all. So we have the benefit of like we get to see it in little spurts. Like we get to see a little sin and confess it, another sin and confess it, maybe a big issue and confess it, maybe an issue that uh, that beats us up and we just kind of numb ourselves to it because we figure it's never going to change. And we have to unpack our sin, but we do it over time and we get little glimpses of it. But it doesn't hit, we don't feel the weight of it all hitting at once. And what Isaiah felt when he stepped into the presence of God, when he saw this was all of the sin from all of his life. And the reality for you and for me is for all the sins that we see, there's a thousand more sins we're not even aware of going on in our hearts and in our worlds under the surface. And so we're fortunate in that respect that we don't have to bear the weight of all of our sin at once. And some Isaiah says, woe is me, my eyes have seen the king. And he knows what God said to Moses, no man can see the Lord and live. And so he's fearful that everything's going to come unglued right at that moment. And so he shook as bad as the rest of the temple did. And finally in verse 6 we see some mercy. And one of the seraphim flew to me, he said, having in his hand a burning coal and taking it with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lip. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That's a picture of grace. Your guilt's taken away. Your sin's paid for. You no longer have to bear it. And what, what a relief. Can you imagine that would be for Isaiah? I'm not about to be obliterated. What God took, what was coming undone, and he put it all back together by his grace in Isaiah's life. And Isaiah could not save himself. His, he brought his sin into the room, and he was damned without any help from the outside. And yet God met him, engaged him in a personal way, and brought him salvation. See, this holy God is also a God of grace. And it's only through the intervention of the altar that he can come and he can be reconnected to the God of holiness. Now, look at what happens next. The very next thing that happens. I think this is fascinating. God didn't, like, give him a little time to rest or anything in between there, did he? God immediately, once he says, once he's been healed, once he's experienced the, the, the taste of redemption on his lips, God immediately says, well, now, who shall I send? Who will go out for us? And what's Isaiah do? He does like the third grader that knows all the answers. Starts waving his hand as fast as he could. And he just says, here I am, Lord, send me. I want to go. Because if you are holy, and if you are good, then there's nothing I would want more to do 
than to, than to serve you and to make you known. Who, whom shall I send? Who will I go? Send me. You notice how closely our mission is connected to our redemption? So when we understand where our salvation comes from, when we understand it's all of grace, when we understand that we brought nothing but brokenness to the table and God sent us away as something that's, redone, that's been restored in, in, in the beauty of his grace, then because of that, our hearts are changed and we want nothing more than to serve him and to worship him and to honor him with the way in which we live. R.C. Sproul says there's a pattern here repeated in history. God appears, people quake in terror. God forgives and heals. God sins. From brokenness to mission is the human pattern. And this is what we're called to be as a church. We're called to be broken people who come into the presence of a holy God, undeserving, who say, woe is me, I'm undone. And God says, let me show you my grace. Let me restore you. Let me take all the places where you chased after broken cisterns trying to meet your own need, all the places where you thought sin was going to be a better path, all the places where you thought you could build a house better on the sand than you could on the rock. Let me take all those places and let me forgive you so that your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. And because of that, now let me send you on mission. Christ said, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. This is what we're called ultimately to be as a church. Jesus died to atone for our sin, to cleanse us, to make us new. This is what the cross and the empty tomb are all about. And ultimately Jesus then, in saving us, also sends us. Would you just um, look at the person next to you and just say it really quickly, just say you're a sinner. You guys, some of you are too comfortable saying that. Some of you spouses are like, I'll tell you about it. You're like, you want me to count the ways? Uh, now, <clears throat> you guys look up here on stage and just say to the person preaching, say, say, Pastor, you're a sinner. Yeah, some of you know it, right? Um, that's who we are. We're sinners in need of grace. And we come into the presence of a holy God. And the only way we stand is by his mercy. Because in the presence of a holy God, all we can say is, woe is me, I'm undone. And he says, let me reach out to you with grace. Let me heal you. Let me send your guilt away. Let me pay for your sins. And then let me send you on a mission. Would you read, I've got a slide up here. Would you just read this out loud with me? Would you just say, and let's just say this loudly. Say, God is holy. God saves us by his grace. God sends us on a mission. Um, that's the message of the scriptures. That's ultimately what we are to be about. And so friends, when we talk about truth, we're not talking about cold dogmatism. We're not talking about institutional control. Truth is personal. It's about a God who loves you and a God who wants you to flourish. And he wants nothing more than to see your good. And so truth is about living honestly under the reign of a sovereign king when the rest of the world looks like it's going haywire and we're not sure what to do. There's a sovereign king who's sitting on a throne, who's working out his plan, who's going to one day return, send his son to return, and make all things new. And so that king is both holy and gracious, and so we rest in him. Let me read for you 1 Peter um, 2. It says, But you are a chosen race, church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Friends, we were in darkness, but truth came. So now we're in his marvelous light, and we're a people set apart for him. That's what we're to be about. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would meet us where we are today. Father, that for those of us that are still in darkness, would you shine the light of grace in our hearts. Father, for those who are wallowing in their sin and feel a bit undone, Father, would you in your mercy heal them, send their guilt away, let them see the atonement for their sins that is is true in the person of Jesus, sacrificial lamb who died to take away the sin of the world. Father, would you, would you make us a people that encounters you, that sees you as holy and good and gracious. Father, help each person here to know that to be personally true. Father, pray it in Christ's name. Amen.